Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. This is the gospel according to Luke chapter for, uh, sorry, chapter 24, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtains of the temple were torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. And the centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this is a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to see you. Should we pray a second? Let's just pray. God, would you, use, would you use my words? Would you use this time that we have to unpack your scriptures? Lord, I'm interested in what you want to do. Lord, I want you to minister to hearts. I want you to heal, transform, stir, provoke. Lord, would you walk among us this morning and do whatever it is that you want to do through the words that I offer? Amen. Amen. So, uh, we're not kind of in a series at the moment, so um, Johnny and Amy asked me just kind of to speak on whatever is on my heart at the moment. So, we're going to look this morning at Jesus' very last words on, on this earth. The very last thing that Jesus says before he departs this world. Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Think of everything. Think of everything that Jesus teaches throughout his time on earth. Think of every message that he preaches. Especially as he's approaching the cross, he knows that his time is coming to an end with his disciples. He is literally pouring out teaching. In those last days, he deliberately spends a really intense amount of time just with his disciples, pouring into them teaching. Think of everything that Jesus offers his disciples, every message, every bit of teaching that he pours out. And then here we are, the very last thing that Jesus wants to leave us with, the very last message that Jesus wants to impart. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Jesus' final act is an act of trust, is an act of surrender to his Father. This is the declaration that he wants to leave us with, commitment and surrender. In the garden with Adam, his first act is an act of distrust in God, isn't it? He doesn't trust God. And so he goes his own way. And yet Jesus' final act here on earth is an act of surrender and an act of trust. At the beginning of Jesus' life here on earth, the Father speaks over him at the beginning of his ministry. And he says, what does he say? This is my begotten son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus' last words on earth, this is my father with whom I trust, in whom I trust. This is my trustworthy Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We have experienced a nuclear meltdown in trust in our society. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've picked up on that. But we genuinely struggle in today's day and age, to surrender to anything or to anyone, to trust anything or anyone. I don't know if you've experienced that, seen that, felt that maybe in your own life, just a real struggle to trust anything. Harvard Business Review in 2019, they um, released this article, which was about the Edelman Trust Barometer. This company called Edelman um, have something called a trust barometer, and they kind of assess trust they kind of look at society and assess how um, much we trust things like businesses, NGOs, governments, media. So that every once in a while they put out a survey. And in 2019, they put out a survey. They surveyed tens of thousands of people in dozens of countries. And they surveyed their levels of trust in business, media, government, NGOs. And there was a decline across the board in all four institutions. Below 58% of people said that they trust any of those institutions to do what is right, to do right by them. Millennials are the least trusting um, generation there have ever been. If you're a millennial, apparently only 19% of millennials trust other millennials. There is a nuclear um, like disaster meltdown in trust. We struggle to trust government, we struggle to trust media, we struggle to trust church leaders, any leadership. We even struggle to trust one another. And what happens when you distrust? What effect does that have on society? Well, it causes you to withdraw, doesn't it? it you withdraw your emotions, you withdraw your finances, your intellect, and you begin to push people and things away that you don't trust. And so society has become increasingly polarized as we struggle to trust one another. So where can we put our trust? If we can't put our trust in politics, if we can't put our trust in media, in religious leaders, then where do we put our trust? And what happens then is you get a culture of fear. When you struggle to trust, what happens is you just, um, what rises up in you is fear and anxiety. Howard Thurman, he wrote a book called uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, and he said this. I absolutely love it. I think it will come up on the screen. 
There is nothing new or recent about fear. It is doubtless as old as the life of man on the planet. Fears are of many kinds. Fear of objects, fear of people, fear of the future, fear of nature, fear of the unknown, fear of old age, fear of disease, and fear of life itself. Then there is fear which has to do with aspects of experience and detailed states of minds. Our homes, institutions, prisons, churches are crowded with people who are hounded by day and harrowed by night because of some fear that lurks ready to spring into action as soon as one is alone or as soon as the lights go out or as soon as one's social defenses are temporarily removed. An epidemic of fear. As a pastor, I have conversations all the time with people who are afraid, with people who are struggling with anxiety. And what does that do? When we struggle to trust and when we fear what happens is it produces this idol in us of control. I don't know if you can identify this in your own life, but this idol of control, wanting, if we don't feel like we can trust anyone, what we end up doing is only trusting ourselves. And if we can only trust ourselves, then we think, well, it's up to me. Only I can get what I want. Only I can look out for my needs. If I'm going to be safe... The only way that that's going to happen is if I look after myself. And this idol of control and wanting to control our lives around us, the narrative around us, begins to creep in. We even have a term for it, don't we? A control freak. A control freak. And we just kind of ban that around, oh, I'm a control freak. But if we think about it, that's scary language, a freak. I don't know if you would see yourself as someone that struggles with control, but I know that for me, this is something God is identifying in me at the moment. So let's do a little bit of a questionnaire. Let's do some diagnostics in our own lives. Let's look at ourselves for a second and see whether there is an idol of control functioning in your life. I wonder if you can identify any of these three things. Firstly, the need to control timing in your life. Controlling timing in your life. Do you struggle to trust God with the timings of your life? Do you want to control when things happen? We all, don't we, want our lives to go a certain way at a certain time. There are these kind of deep internal scripts of like, what should happen when in our lives? The order that things should happen and when they should happen. We live in this culture of now and immediacy, and we aren't used to waiting for anything. And so we live in this culture where we want everything when we want it, according to our timings. And we have all internalized deep scripts about when things should happen in our lives. We live in this culture of now, and so because we struggle to wait, we try and seize our destiny instead of waiting for God to give it to us. And so in the end, if we try and seize our destiny, what happens? We sabotage it. We sabotage it. This happens with Saul. If we look at the life of Saul when he became king, he um, was at war with the Philistines. The Philistines were a terrifying uh, um, enemy. It says in 1 Samuel 13 that they, the Philistines were as, as vast as the ocean, a really formidable enemy. And Saul is going into battle with them, like one of the very first things he does 
as king and he thinks, wait a minute, before we go into battle with the Philistines, we better ask for God's protection and God's blessing. And so he calls on the priest Samuel, the prophet, and he asks for Samuel to come and to um, burn an offering to the Lord in order to receive the Lord's blessing and the Lord's protection. And Samuel says, I'll be with you in seven days. And they wait for seven days. And seven days come and Samuel still hasn't arrived. And so what does Saul do? Instead of just waiting a little bit longer, he takes matters into his own hands. He says, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to fulfill the act that Samuel is going to act. I'm going to become the priest. And he asks for the burnt offering, and he burns the offering to the Lord himself. And it's, it's really Shakespearean, because as soon as he does it, Samuel arrives. And Samuel looks at Saul, and he says, what have you done? What have you done? Because you didn't wait, the kingdom is not going to be given to you. The kingdom is going to be taken off of you and be given to someone else because you didn't wait. Because you tried to be king in your own way and in your own timing, you will lose the kingdom. We have in us, don't we, a need to get things done in our own timing when we want it. We have a spirit of control of timings. Maybe you identify that. Maybe the second one, controlling outcomes. We want things to turn out the way that we want things to turn out. We want to control the outcome of our lives. We all have ideas of how life should turn out, how God should answer our prayers, what the outcomes of our lives should be. Even when we pray, you know, God, your will be done. We all have ideas of what God's will should be. For our lives. And so there is a temptation, isn't there? If you struggle with, the, with controlling outcomes, there is a temptation to compromise and manipulate in order, in order to achieve the desired outcomes that you want. In 2019, there was this scandal that broke out in the US, a college admissions scandal. It was called the Varsity Blues Scandal. And basically, what they discovered was at least 33 parents who had paid altogether over $22 million in order to have their children's test results um, inflated or in order to bribe college admissions staff to get their children into their desired universities, to get their children into the universities and colleges in the States that were top. Parents who are trying to manufacture the outcomes of their children's lives. We all have, I think, an addiction to making sure that we get what we want. We think we know what we should get. We think we know what the outcome of our lives should be. So even when we're praying, we have an idea of what the answers to our prayers should be. Maybe you identify with that. Controlling timing, controlling outcome, and then finally, probably the worst of all, the idol of controlling God. We can believe, can't we, that we can control God. We can believe that by our performance, by doing the right things, that we can get God of the universe to do what we want him to do. In fact, many of us aren't actually in a genuine, authentic relationship with God. But instead, we're just using God to get what we want. We think that we can use God. If we do the right rituals, 
if we perform in the right way and do things in the right way, that we can manipulate God into giving us the things that we want. I have conversations with people all the time who are angry with God or have, are experiencing heartache with God because God is not giving them what they think he should be doing. God is not doing in their lives what they think he should be doing in their lives. It produces heartache, it produces pain, it produces anger. All because we think we can manipulate God into basically doing our will. Instead of saying, God, your will be done in our lives, what we're really saying is, God, my will be done in my life. This is what happens on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, people are out celebrating Jesus. They've heard of what he can do. They've heard of the miracles. They've heard of everything that he's able to do, the power that he has, the healing that he's been able to do in people's lives. And so people flock to see him because of what he can do. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they've heard of what Jesus can do and they're hoping that Jesus will do that in their lives. And yet things do not turn out as they thought. Jesus is arrested, Jesus is flogged, and he's on his way to the cross. And the very people that just days before were celebrating him and saying, Hosanna in the highest, suddenly turn against him. Why? Because he didn't do what they thought he should do. He wasn't the kind of God that they thought that he would be. And so they turn on him. We think that if we do this, pray right, tithe the right amount of money, wait to have sex for marriage. If we do all these things, then God will give us what we want. And we will never experience any pain or experience any suffering. But God doesn't work like that. God is not your holy bodyguard that is here to protect you from pain and suffering. We can spend our lives getting God to do our will rather than spending our lives doing God's will. Sky Jefferson said this, I want my desires fulfilled and I want my pain minimized. Above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity that will do my will on earth as well as in heaven. You know, if we're not careful, even our obedience becomes manipulation. We think if we are obedient to God, then we can manipulate him into doing what we want him to do. So do you identify with any of those three things? How are you doing on the test? Controlling timings, controlling outcomes, even controlling God. Let's go back to Jesus and his last words on the cross. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Things are not going Jesus' way at this point. Jesus is heading to a death. He is dying on the cross. He is certainly not getting what he wants. But even though in this moment he is heading towards his death, he is able to say, Father, I surrender. Father, I trust you. And he's teaching us something in this moment. He's saying this is the posture of the kingdom. Even when we're not getting our way. Even when we're heading to death. Not your will, not my will, but your will. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That is the posture of the kingdom. And it would be really easy for us to think, well, surrender and trust is really easy for Jesus. He's Jesus. He has no problem with surrender and trust. 
But this level of surrender and trust, Jesus works for, and he works at. He fights for this level of surrender. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is sweating tears of blood, crying out to Jesus, saying, take this from me, take this cup from me. I don't want it. He fights and he works to get to this place where he is able to say on the cross, into your hands, I commit my spirit. How is he able to get there in the end? How does he get to this level of surrender and trust? He knows God as father. He knows God as father. Even as a child, even as a teenager, Jesus addresses God as father. Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? His whole life on earth, he understands God as father. In the Sermon on Mount alone, he addresses God as father 17 times. Between John 14 and 16, he uses the word father 45 times. He knows God as father, and in his last sentence on earth, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knows that he is his father's beloved son. To love someone is to will for their good. To will for their good, to want their good. That is what love is. And Jesus knows that he has a father who loves him. And so he can surrender. He can let go because he knows he has a father who will catch him. You'll have seen it, won't you? Fathers with their children, where children just like will just leap off or fall back knowing that their father will catch them. Have you seen that? Have you been around a father and a child that does that? And it can look terrifying But that child knows that they have a father that loves them and so will catch them so they can let go. Jesus knows that he can let go on the cross because he has a father who will catch him, who wants his good. Brennan Manning, um, he's like a Catholic theologian. He was really interested in this idea of surrender and trust. He was really interested in this idea of letting go And so, towards the end of his life, he actually takes up um, trapeze artistry. He becomes like a trapeze artist. You all know what a trapeze artist does. You climb a really tall ladder, you go to a little platform, you have like some ropes and a bar, and you grab onto the bar and you leap off the platform. And the idea is that at some point, you let go of the bar, trusting that there's someone else that's going to grab you. Can you picture it? A trapeze artist. And so Brennan Manning, who's so interested in this idea of surrender and trust, he wants to embody it. And so he becomes a trapeze artist towards the end of his life because he wants to understand letting go. He wants to understand what it is to let go because that is the life of a disciple. It's the act of letting go, knowing that someone will catch you. And apparently, I was listening to a YouTube video this week on what it is to be a trapeze artist. And apparently, the the skill is literally just letting go. And then being really still. All you have to do as a trapeze artist is have the confidence to let go and to be still 
And then there's a moment where you are just suspended in air, hanging there, trusting that there is going to be someone who's going to catch you. Just let go and then be still. Just let go and then be still. But there is a part of learning about trapezing that's really important because when you first go out on the trapeze, you have no idea about timing. You don't know when to let go. You don't know when the moment is. And so if you're in trapeze school, apparently according to this YouTube video, what happens is there's a teacher who watches you and then they tell you the moment when to jump off the platform and then they tell you the exact moment when to let go. They watch the timings for you so that you let go at the right time when someone's going to catch you. And so what you've got to do as a trapeze artist when you're learning is just really listen out for your teacher. And then when they say the word, hep, you let go. So you just listen out for that, hep. And then when they say that, you let go and you're caught. And as I was listening to this YouTube video and I was thinking about us all this morning, I just thought that that might be for someone. I think that God is saying, hep, it's time to let go. It's time to surrender. I don't know what the thing is that you need to let go of. It might be a relationship. It might be pride. It might, I don't know what it is. You'll know. But you need to listen out to the voice of the Father. And when he says let go, you need to trust that he's going to catch you. That you have a loving Father who is going to catch you. Um, at the communion table, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, did you know the, what the ancient Greek word for the Last Supper table is? What they use in the, in, um, when they're describing the Last Supper? The word for table, trapeza. Trapeze. In other words, let go. Jesus, around the Last Supper, at the communion table, he's saying, let go of your life in order to keep it. In order to take up your life, you have to let it go. I just wonder if God is saying to you today, if you want to really live, just let go. It's time. Let go of that thing. Let go of that thing. Do you know, sometimes letting go is the hardest thing. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? Trapeze artist, just let go. There is no way if I was suspended that many feet off the ground that I would let go. <laughs> There's no way. Sometimes letting go is the hardest thing to do. You know, when Jesus cries out on the cross and it says, um, it says in the Gospels that he yelled out with a loud voice, into your hands I commend my spirit. It says he cries out with a loud voice. Do you know the strength it would take for Jesus, who is in the middle of being crucified, to cry out with a loud voice? I hadn't thought about the fact there were going to be children in the room when I was preaching. But if you are crucified, you, the weight of your body, you can't hold it anymore. And so it becomes a real difficulty to breathe. And so for him to have the strength, to find the strength, to cry out, into your hands I commit my spirit, would have taken every ounce of strength that Jesus had left. And so I'm not standing here telling you to let go, thinking it's going to be easy for you. 
I know that sometimes letting go of your life is the very hardest thing to do. But I also know that that is where life is. Unless a seed is, dies and buried, it will not bear fruit. And so the declaration that Jesus is calling us to live is this declaration. Jesus, into your hands. Father, into your hands. I commit your spirit. Why don't we stand for a second if you're able. We'll get the band up. Maybe Amy can come up. And let's just do a bit of ministry for a time.